This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 6 Water, Water Two hours later, that is, about four o'clock, I woke up for so soon as the first heavy demand of bodily fatigue had been satisfied, the torturing thirst from which I was suffering asserted itself. I could sleep no more. I had been dreaming that I was bathing in a running stream, with green banks and trees upon them, and I awoke to find myself in this arid wilderness, and to remember, as Umbopa had said, that if we did not find water this day we must perish miserably. No human creature could live long without water in that heat. I sat up and rubbed my grimy face with my dry and horny hands, as my lips and eyelids were stuck together, and it was only after some friction and with an effort that I was able to open them. It was not far from dawn, but there was none of the bright feel of dawn in the air, which was thick with a hot murkiness that I cannot describe. The others were still sleeping. Presently it began to grow light enough to read, so I drew out a little pocket copy of the Ingoldsby Legends, which I had brought with me, and read The Jackdaw of Reims. When I got to where a nice little boy held a golden ewer, embossed and filled with water as pure as any that flows between Reims and Namur, Literally, I smacked my cracking lips, or rather tried to smack them. The mere thought of that pure water made me mad. If the cardinal had been there with his bell, book, and candle, I would have whipped in and drunk his water up. Yes, even if he had filled it already with the suds of soap worthy of washing the hands of the Pope, and I knew that the whole consecrated curse of the Catholic Church should fall upon me for so doing. I almost think that I must have been a little light-headed with thirst, weariness, and the want of food, for I fell to thinking how astonished the cardinal and his nice little boy and the jackdaw would have looked to see a burnt-up, brown-eyed, grizzly-haired little elephant-hunter suddenly bound between them, put his dirty face into the basin, and swallow every drop of the precious water. The idea amused me so much that I laughed, or rather cackled aloud, which woke the others, and they began to rub their dirty faces and drag their gummed-up lips and eyelids apart. As soon as we were all well awake, we began to discuss the situation, which was serious enough. Not a drop of water was left. We turned the bottles upside down and licked the tops, but it was a failure. They were dry as a bone. Good, who had charge of the flask of brandy, got it out and looked at it longingly but Sir Henry promptly took it away from him, for to drink raw spirit would only have been to precipitate the end. If we do not find water, we shall die, he said. If we can trust to the old Dom's map, there should be some about, I said, but nobody seemed to derive much satisfaction from this remark. It was so evident that no great faith could be put in the map, 
Now it was gradually growing light, and as we sat staring blankly at each other, I observed the Hottentot Ventvogel rise and begin to walk about with his eyes on the ground. Presently he stopped short, and uttering a guttural exclamation, pointed to the earth. "'What is it?' we exclaimed, and rising simultaneously, we went to where he was standing, staring at the sand. "'Well,' I said, "'it is fresh springbok spore. What of it?' "'Springboks do not go far from water,' he answered in Dutch. "'No,' I answered, "'I forgot, and thank God for it. This little discovery put new life into us, for it is wonderful when a man is in a desperate position how he catches at the slightest hope and feels almost happy. On a dark night a single star is better than nothing. Meanwhile Ventvogel was lifting his snub nose and sniffing the hot air for all the world like an old Impala ram who scents danger. Presently he spoke again. I smell water, he said. Then we fell quite jubilant, for we knew what a wonderful instinct these wild-bred men possess. Just at that moment the sun came up gloriously, and revealed so grand a sight to our astonished eyes that for a moment or two we even forgot our thirst. There, not more than forty or fifty miles from us, glittering like silver in the early rays of the morning sun, soared Sheba's breasts, and stretching away for hundreds of miles on either side of them, ran the great Suleiman Berg. Now that sitting here I attempt to describe the extraordinary grandeur and beauty of that sight, language seems to fail me. I am impotent even before its memory. Straight before us rose two enormous mountains, the likes of which are not, I believe, to be seen in Africa, if indeed there are any other such in the world, measuring each of them at least 15,000 feet in height, standing not more than a dozen miles apart, linked together by a precipitous cliff of rock, and towering in awful white solemnity straight into the sky. These mountains placed thus, like the pillars of a gigantic gateway, are shaped after the fashion of a woman's breasts, and at times the mists and shadows beneath them take the form of a recumbent woman, veiled mysteriously in sleep. Their bases swell gently from the plain, looking at that distance perfectly round and smooth, and upon the top of each is a vast hillock covered with snow exactly corresponding to the nipple on the female breast. The stretch of cliff that connects them appears to be some thousands of feet in height, and perfectly precipitous, and on each flank of them, so far as the eye can reach, extend similar lines of cliff, broken only here and there by flat table-topped mountains, something like the world-famed one at Cape Town, a formation, by the way, that is very common in Africa. To describe... The comprehensive grandeur of that view is beyond my powers. There was something so inexpressibly solemn and overpowering about those huge volcanoes, for doubtless they are extinct volcanoes, that it quite awed us. For a while the morning lights played upon the snow and the brown and swelling masses beneath, 
and then, as though to veil the majestic sight from our curious eyes, strange vapors and clouds gathered and increased around the mountains, till presently we could only trace their pure and gigantic outlines, showing ghost-like through the fleecy envelope. Indeed, as we afterwards discovered, usually they were wrapped in this gauze-like mist, which doubtless accounted for our not having seen them more clearly before. Sheba's breasts had scarcely vanished into cloud-clad privacy before our thirst, literally a burning question, reasserted itself. It was all very well for Ventvogel to say that he smelt water, but we could see no signs of it, look which way we would. So far as the eye might reach, there was nothing but arid, sweltering sand and Karoo scrub. We walked round the hillock, and gazed about anxiously on the other side, but it was the same story. Not a drop of water could be found. There was no indication of a pan, a pool, or a spring. You are a fool, I said angrily to Ventvogel. There is no water. But still he lifted his ugly snub nose, sniffed. I smell it, boss, he answered. It is somewhere in the air. Yes, I said, no doubt it is in the clouds, and about two months hence it will fall and wash our bones. Sir Henry stroked his yellow beard thoughtfully. Perhaps it is on the top of the hill, he suggested. Rot, said Good. Who ever heard of water being found at the top of a hill? Let us go and look, I put in and hopelessly enough we scrambled up the sandy sides of the hillock, Umbopa leading. Presently he stopped as though he was petrified. Nanzi Amanzi, that is, here is water, he cried with a loud voice. We rushed up to him, and there, sure enough, in a deep cut or indentation on the very top of the sand copy, was an undoubted pool of water. How it came to be in such a strange place we did not stop to inquire, nor did we hesitate at its black and unpleasant appearance. It was water or a good imitation of it, and that was enough for us. We gave a bound and a rush, and in another second we were all down on our stomachs, sucking up the uninviting fluid as though it were nectar fit for the gods. Heavens, how we did drink! Then, when we had done drinking, we tore off our clothes and sat in the pool, absorbing the moisture through our parched skins. You, Harry, my boy, who have only to turn a couple of taps to summon hot and cold from an unseen, vasty cistern, can have little idea of the luxury of that muddy wallow in brackish, tepid water. After a while we rose from it, refreshed indeed, and fell to on our biltong, of which we had scarcely been able to touch a mouthful for twenty-four hours, and ate our fill. Then we smoked a pipe, and lay down by the side of that blessed pool, under the overhanging shadow of its bank, and slept till noon. All that day we rested there by the water, thanking our stars that we had been lucky enough to find it, bad as it was, and not forgetting to render a due share of gratitude to the shade of the long-departed da Silvestra, who had set its position down so accurately on the tail of his shirt. 
The wonderful thing to us was that the pan should have lasted so long, and the only way in which I can account for this is on the supposition that it is fed by some spring deep down in the sand. Having filled both ourselves and our water bottles as full as possible, in far better spirits we started off again with the moon. That night we covered nearly five and twenty miles, but needless to say found no more water, though we were lucky enough the following day to get a little shade behind some ant heaps. When the sun rose and for a while cleared away the mysterious mists, Suleiman's Berg, with the two majestic breasts, now only about twenty miles off, seemed to be towering right above us, and looked grander than ever. At the approach of evening, we marched again, and to cut a long story short, by daylight next morning, found ourselves upon the lowest slopes of Sheba's left breast, for which we had been steadily steering. By this time our water was exhausted once more, and we were suffering severely from thirst, nor indeed could we see any chance of relieving it till we reached the snow line far, far above us. After resting an hour or two, driven to it by our torturing thirst, we went on, toiling painfully in the burning heat up the lava slopes, for we found that the huge base of the mountain was composed entirely of lava beds belched from the bowels of the earth in some far past age. By eleven o'clock we were utterly exhausted and generally speaking in a very bad state indeed. The lava clinker over which we must drag ourselves, though smooth compared with some clinker I have heard of, such as that on the island of Ascension, for instance, was yet rough enough to make our feet very sore, and this, together with our other miseries, had pretty well finished us. A few hundred yards above us were some large lumps of lava, and toward these we steered with the intention of lying down beneath their shade. We reached them, and to our surprise, so far as we had a capacity for surprise left in us, on a little plateau or ridge close by, we saw that the clinker was covered with a dense green growth. Evidently, soil formed of decomposed lava had rested there, and in due course had become the receptacle of seeds deposited by birds. But we did not take much further interest in that green growth, for one cannot live on grass like Nebuchadnezzar. That requires a special dispensation of providence and peculiar digestive organs. So we sat down under the rocks and groaned, and for one I wish heartily that we had never started on this fool's errand. As we were sitting there, I saw Umbopa get up and hobble towards the patch of green, and a few minutes afterwards, to my great astonishment, I perceived that usually very dignified individual dancing and shouting like a maniac and waving something green. Off we all scrambled towards him as fast as our wearied limbs would carry us, hoping that he had found water. "'What is it, Umbopa, son of a fool?' I shouted in Zulu. "'It is food and water, Macumazan,' and again he waved the green thing. Then I saw what he had found. It was a melon. We had hit upon a patch of wild melons, thousands of them, and dead ripe. "'Melons!' I yelled to Good, who was next to me and in another minute his false teeth were fixed in one of them. 
I think we ate about six each before we had done, and, and poor fruit as they were, I doubt if I ever thought anything nicer. But melons are not very nutritious, and when we had satisfied our thirst with their pulpy substance, and put a stock to cool by the simple process of cutting them in two, and setting them end on in the hot sun to grow cold by evaporation, we began to feel exceedingly hungry. We had still some biltong left, but our stomachs turned from biltong, and besides, we were obliged to be very sparing of it, for we could not say when we should find more food. Just at this moment, a lucky thing chanced. Looking across the desert, I saw a flock of about ten large birds flying straight towards us. Skit, boss, skit! Shoot, master, shoot! whispered the Hottentot, throwing himself on his face, an example which we all followed. Then I saw that the birds were a flock of pow, or bustards, and that they would pass within fifty yards of my head. Taking one of the repeating Winchesters, I waited till they were very nearly over us, and then jumped to my feet. On seeing me, the pow bunched up together, as I expected that they would, and I fired two shots straight into the thick of them. And as luck would have, it brought down one, a fine fellow that weighed about twenty pounds. In half an hour we had a fire made of dry melon stalks, and he was toasting over it, and we made such a feed as we had not tasted for a week. We ate that pow, nothing was left of him but his leg bones in his beak, and we felt not a little the better afterwards. That night we went on again with the moon, carrying as many melons as we could with us, as we ascended, we found the air grew cooler and cooler, which was a great relief to us, and at dawn, so far as we could judge, we were not more than about a dozen miles from the snow line. Here we discovered more melons, and so had no longer any anxiety about water, for we knew that we should soon get plenty of snow. But the ascent had now become very precipitous, and we made but slow progress, not more than a mile an hour. Also that night we ate our last morsel of biltong. As yet, with the exception of the pow, we had seen no living thing on the mountain, nor had we come across a single spring or stream of water, which struck us as very odd, considering the expanse of snow above us, which must, we thought, melt sometimes. But as we afterwards discovered, owing to a cause which is quite beyond my power to explain, all the streams flowed down upon the north side of the mountain. Now we began to grow very anxious about food. We had escaped death by thirst, but it seemed probable that it was only to die of hunger. The events of the next three miserable days are best described by copying the entries made at the time in my notebook. 21st May. Started 11 a.m., finding the atmosphere quite cold enough to travel by day, and carrying some watermelons with us, struggled on all day, but found no more melons, having evidently passed out of their district. Saw no game of any sort. Halted for the night at sundown, having had no food for many hours. Suffered much during the night from cold. Twenty-second. Started at sunrise again, feeling very faint and weak. Only made about five miles all day. 
found some patches of snow of which we ate, but nothing else. Camped at night under the edge of a great plateau. Cold, bitter. Drank a little brandy each and huddled ourselves together, each wrapped up in his blanket, to keep ourselves alive. Are now suffering frightfully from starvation and weariness. Thought that Ventvogel would have died during the night. Twenty-third. Struggled forward once more as soon as the sun was well up and had thawed our limbs a little. We are now in a dreadful plight, and I fear that unless we get food this will be our last day's journey. But little brandy left. Good Sir Henry and Umbopa bear up wonderfully, but Ventvogel is in a very bad way. Like most Hottentots he cannot stand cold. Pangs of hunger not so bad, but have a sort of numb feeling about the stomach. Others say the same. We are now on a level with the precipitous chain or wall of lava, linking the two breasts, and the view is glorious. Behind us the glowing desert rolls away to the horizon, and before us lie mile upon mile of smooth hard snow, almost level, but swelling gently upwards, out of the center of which the nipple of the mountain, that appears to be some miles in circumference, rises about 4,000 feet into the sky. Not a living thing is to be seen. God help us, I fear that our time has come. And now I will drop the journal, partly because it is not very interesting reading. Also, what follows requires telling rather more fully. All that day, the 23rd May, we struggled slowly up the incline of snow, lying down from time to time to rest. A strange, gaunt crew we must have looked, while, laden as we were, we dragged our weary feet over the dazzling plain, glaring round us with hungry eyes. Not that there was much use in glaring, for we could see nothing to eat. We did not accomplish more than seven miles that day. Just before sunset, we found ourselves exactly under the nipple of Sheba's left breast, which towered thousands of feet into the air, a vast, smooth hillock of frozen snow. Weak as we were, we could not but appreciate the wonderful scene, made even more splendid by the flying rays of light from the setting sun, which here and there stained the snow blood-red and crowned the great dome above us with a diadem of glory. "'I say,' gasped Good presently, we ought to be somewhere near that cave the old gentleman wrote about. Yes, said I, if there is a cave. Come, Quartermain, groaned Sir Henry. Don't talk like that. I have every faith in the dom. Remember the water. We shall find the place soon. If we don't find it before dark, we are dead men. That is all about it, was my consolatory reply. For the next ten minutes we trudged in silence, when suddenly Umbopa, who was marching along beside me, wrapped in his blanket, and with a leather belt strapped so tightly round his stomach to make his hunger small, as he said, that his waist looked like a girl's, caught me by the arm. Look, he said, pointing towards the springing slope of the nipple. I followed his glance, 
and some two hundred yards from us perceived what appeared to be a hole in the snow. "'It is the cave,' said Umbopa. We made the best of our way to the spot, and found sure enough that the hole was the mouth of a cavern, no doubt the same as that of which da Silvestra wrote. We were not too soon, for just as we reached shelter the sun went down with startling rapidity, leaving the world nearly dark, for in these latitudes there is but little twilight. So we crept into the cave, which did not appear to be very big, and huddling ourselves together for warmth, swallowed what remained of our brandy, barely a mouthful each, and tried to forget our miseries in sleep. But the cold was too intense to allow us to do so, for I am convinced that at this great altitude the thermometer cannot have marked less than fourteen or fifteen degrees below freezing point. What such a temperature meant to us, enervated as we were by hardship, want of food, and the great heat of the desert, the reader may imagine better than I can describe. Suffice it to say that it was something as near death from exposure as I have ever felt. There we sat, hour after hour, through the still and bitter night, feeling the frost wander round and nip us now in the finger, now in the foot, now in the face. In vain we did huddle up closer and closer, there was no warmth in our miserable starved carcasses. Sometimes one of us would drop into an uneasy slumber for a few minutes, but we could not sleep much, and perhaps this was fortunate, for if we had, I doubt if we should have ever woke again. Indeed, I believe that it was only by force of will that we kept ourselves alive at all. Not very long before dawn I heard the Hottentot Ventvogel, whose teeth had been chattering all night like castanets, give a deep sigh. Then his teeth stopped chattering. I did not think anything of it at the time, concluding that he had gone to sleep. His back was resting against mine, and it seemed to grow colder and colder, till at last it felt like ice. At length the air began to grow gray with light, then golden arrows sped across the snow, and at last the glorious sun peeped above the lava wall and looked in upon our half-frozen forms. Also it looked upon Ventvogel, sitting there amongst us, stone dead. No wonder his back felt cold, poor fellow. He had died when I heard him sigh, and was now frozen almost stiff. Shocked beyond measure, we dragged ourselves from the corpse. How strange is that horror we mortals have! of the companionship of a dead body, and left it sitting there, its arms clasped about its knees. By this time the sunlight was pouring its cold rays, for here they were cold, straight into the mouth of the cave. Suddenly I heard an exclamation of fear from someone and turned my head. And this is what I saw. Sitting at the end of the cavern, it was not more than twenty feet deep, was another form, of which the head rested on its chest and the long arms hung down. I stared at it and saw that this too was a dead man, and, what was more, a white man. The others saw also, and the sight proved too much for our shattered nerves. One and all we scrambled out of the cave as fast as our half-frozen limbs would carry us. 
End of chapter 6